Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's virtual Commonwealth Club event. My name is DJ Patil. I'm the former U.S. Chief Data Scientist and member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. It is my pleasure to introduce Bill Gates, co-chair of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and author of his new latest book, How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Bill has spent more than 20 years working on global health and development issues, including pandemic prevention, disease eradication, and so much more. In his new book, uh, he really lays out what the world should have learned and what we are continuing to learn about COVID-19 and really what can be done to ward off another disaster. So we're going to be covering a huge amount in the next hour. I'm thrilled that you're joining us here. So please submit your questions online at the text to chat feature on YouTube. And of course, you can follow along, follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Gates. You can follow me at dpatil, D-P-A-T-I-L, and the Commonwealth Club at CW Club. And you can also find all of us on LinkedIn. So Bill, let me first start by asking you, well, I'm almost like we're in this moment of the pandemic, which is almost interesting to take a step back and reflect where we where we are right now, because we're 886 days in. That's 2.4 years, you know, since initial discovery in Wuhan. You know, we've had 6.26 million deaths worldwide, a million dead here just in the United States, and probably a drastic undercount. Uh, COVID has moved to the number three cause of death here in the United States, just behind heart disease and cancer. In the U.S., 200,000 kids are without at least one of their caregivers or parents. You know, we've had the worst economic impact since World War II. You know, we've seen spike after spike of variants. Congress is literally stuck debating about COVID right now. And we're just beginning to start seeing the impact of long COVID. And yet we're still in the beginning. We're still in this pandemic, not the next pandemic. And, and so, you know, the fundamental question is, why write about the next pandemic when we're still trying to just, like, meander through this one? Well, you're absolutely right that uh, this pandemic remains a real problem and, and some uncertainty about what new variants there will be. Our science of understanding variants is actually pretty weak. And so although we don't think there'll be something a lot worse, uh, we do have ongoing infection. I, I tested positive last week myself, even though I had uh, my fourth vaccine. And uh, you know, luckily, I didn't have a very bad case. The key is that uh, things that only happen rarely, we have a hard time getting ready for. You know, it's just easy to, to take the personnel that's supposed to be standing by and have them work on other problems. And so the CDC, which is a, an amazing organization, didn't keep much full-time work on pandemics. And so the idea of how do you scale up diagnostics, you know, how do you reach out to the commercial PCR providers and, you know, get that so that samples are being processed immediately, no backlog, and a, you know, government website that makes sure the right people are, are being tested. We just weren't ready. And so we bungled that that key first period. Um, you know, now it'd be good to reflect and make what I consider actually quite modest investments in global surveillance, in U.S. particular uh, capabilities, and then an R&D agenda to give us even better tools than we ended up with this time. So, you know, my book is fairly upbeat about, yes, this was a tragedy, uh, but there was some good innovation that we can build on so that in the future, when you have outbreaks, uh, you respond quickly and you're, you try to prevent it from going global, which is when we use the word pandemic. I think one of the powerful things for me, the way you started the book is, is actually about talking about firefighters and how our strategy and thinking, I, I didn't realize how far back firefighting goes. Maybe maybe you could take a moment and sort of walk people through that part, because I think it really helps frame how to think about risk. Yeah, so firefighting is the analogy that uh, I think most people understand, because they, you know, they see the exit signs, they know about fire drills, you know, there's a fire department, there's fire hydrants. I was amazed that there's 300,000 full-time firefighters in the U.S., 
Now with fire, you have lots of small ones and thankfully now very few big ones. With pandemics coming into rich countries, you have very few small ones. You'll have a lot out in developing countries, but infectious disease uh, isn't you know, all that uh, prevalent here. And so these respiratory infections that spread very quickly, they don't come in uh, to say the US very often. So it's easy uh, to forget uh, that. The, uh, the firefighting used to be even a bigger deal because you had cities that were more flammable. And so it was in 6 CE that the Roman emperor decided he would have a bucket brigade. Um, and that was well organized. Uh, you know, then uh, throughout history, you have people like Ben Franklin, who was very big on, you know, organizing the fire department and making sure people were ready. And so fire deaths today are actually pretty small. Uh, and that's because we're vigilant. I used to use the analogy of how we prepare for war, but things like war games are very abstract to people. They don't realize how uh, deep all that is. Fire is the one where they, you know, have a, a personal sense. Uh, and, you know, the investment we need uh, to be ready is way less than we spend on that fire prevention system. Mm-hmm. Well, in particular, one of the things that we'll get to is actually that it's not weird to drill for preparing a fire. We do fire drills all the time. We we have fire departments practice. And, and so we'll get into that in a, in a little bit. But, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, at the landscape and the view that you've had, why has it been so hard for us to get our act together? You know, you know just in the last decade, we've seen Ebola, SARS, MERS, President Obama called out this as one of the singular issues. We've called it out for, for more than a decade on bioterrorism, the call for a national disease forecasting center. In 2015, you gave a TED Talk that has, I think, over 40 million views on it. So people clearly are getting it. What? Why aren't we better prepared as you've looked at across this issue? Yeah, sadly, you know, 90% of those views are after the pandemic started. So, you know, the good case would have been if people have thought, what a weird thing that, you know, I predicted infectious disease, and then it never came along, uh, you know, the ideal would have been uh, that my warnings, and as you said, many other people, anybody who works in infectious disease or goes back and looks at the history, you know, you do worry about this, even if you're not including bioterrorism, uh, which is a hard to measure but significant risk, where you have to do even better surveillance uh, than for naturally caused infections. It's a superset. You have to do everything that you would do for natural and then even a little bit more. But, you know, no one felt it was uh, entirely their responsibility. And even a question like, okay, who should have been talking to the PCR companies um, and getting that ready? Uh, you know, CDC didn't think of that as their job. They have these labs, but very small labs that are really good at salmonella, E. coli uh, type outbreaks, uh, but not where you have to diagnose the entire country uh, more than, than once a month. And so we see a lot of different results where people got that diagnostic uh, capability going quickly and coupled it with quarantine policies. Well, let's let's go with that aspect of CDC because you know it's an institution that has been set up primarily to prevent these diseases. Yet, as you pointed out, we've had this incredible left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. This fracturing across different parts of of the ecosystem. You know, flip flopping on mandates of masks, challenges with you know. I think there's a lot of frustration even with people saying. Who owns this? Is it CDC or FDA right now? We're still waiting, even though the data has all been submitted for child, you know, five and under vaccine. So, you know, in the U.S. versus other countries, what one of the things that you call for is basically a pandemic czar. Like what? What's your takeaway and set of recommendations for how what we can do to for lack of a better term, refactor for those that are not technology, you know, get our, get our organizations in order so that we can get ready for this. Well, the U S 
you know, has incredible groups. The CDC, which is responsible for the uh, smallpox eradication, you know, that was completed in, in 1980. Uh, CDC is a huge partner of the Gates Foundation and polio eradication that we're near finishing. And CDC has a lot of things that they just do an amazing job on. But they did not uh, keep a dedicated team that was practicing on pandemics. Uh, you know, their budgets were tight. There's a lot of pressing needs. People expected the U.S. to have the least deaths uh, per capita. And yet, you know, we see that we are about as high as anyone. Uh, there's hardly anyone who has uh, more deaths per capita than we do. That's partly age structure. It's partly the prevalence of the comorbidities like uh, diabetes and uh, obesity. But we did not distinguish ourselves uh, despite all those predictions that we would. And so, you know, it's worth going back through and saying, okay, who should organize trials for interventions? FDA is sort of the judge of trials, but we didn't have a clear sense of, okay, how do you get, you know, take blood plasma or, you know, some of the drugs that uh, were rumored to work, you know, did we actually rule them out uh, or in uh, as quickly as we should? And so it didn't come together. The cracks between, you know, FDA versus CDC versus NIH, you know, we, we had that problem. Other governments, you know, don't have those groups with the deep expertise, partly because uh, the world has a reliance on the U.S. You know, when it comes to medical research, the U.S. funds over half of all, all that gets done. Uh, epidemiology, you know, CDC and others, uh, a lot of expectation there. And so, we can look at, you know, the exemplars, who did particularly well, who did particularly poorly. Uh, and, of course, you have to adjust that now that we understand the risk factors. You have to adjust that for the age structure uh, of, of the population to try and say, well, what are the lessons uh, out of this pandemic, uh, both things not to do and things that, that we should do? What, do you think that, we're t we've taken a black eye because of this in the view of the world as how they look at us and our abilities to rely on, you know, basically CDC being the gold standard, as you pointed out. Well, I think the black eye is more that we withdrew from the WHO in the middle of a global pandemic, you know, so the one organization uh, which has great capabilities, nowhere near perfect, but uh, you know, uh, an organization, our foundation funds for a lot of things, also, you know, super good on the polio work. The U.S. chose not to be involved in global cooperation. And the, the money for global cooperation got sequestered uh, under that administration. So the embarrassing thing was that we didn't, you know, when you have a problem, uh, you know, you expect people to come together collectively. And the U.S. really... Uh, you know, looked very badly in that respect. Some of the things that CDC didn't do, most countries didn't do that well. So, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, Taiwan, uh, Japan, South Korea, it's mostly Asian examples, uh, even though there are more travelers from China to those countries than there are to Europe or the U.S., uh, you don't have many positive outliers in the uh, Americas or Europe as you do in Asia. What, what did they do? Uh, and I know you get, a, you get into this definitely in the later in the book. It, what did they do that is that differentiated them or have them ready to, they, they, they got, especially in this first front of the, the pandemic, I think there's a lot of people who kind of look and say, oh, was it just shutdowns or other things that, that allowed them to get ahead where we failed? Yeah, so in the U.S., we didn't get diagnostic capacity, and we were only testing people who traveled to Asia. The first uh, non-traveler case was actually detected by a Seattle-based study that I was funding called the Seattle Flu Study, where we were looking at all respiratory pathogens. And even though our study protocol you know, didn't let us notify the patient, when we found a COVID case, uh, you know, the principal investigator decided to, you know, uh, speak up about that. 
And so we just wasted that first 100 days. Uh, Australia, partly because they had had a scare, a big scare with SARS-CoV-1, they got that their public health labs couldn't do it. And so their ability to get that PCR testing going and have a very high test rate. So people, you know, would say, okay, I've got symptoms or, you know, I've been near somebody who has symptoms and then having reasonable quarantine policies around that. Now for them, that meant, you know, blocking travelers going in and out of the country, even their own citizens for a long period of time. But in the end, you have to say it was worth it because, uh, you know, 10%, of our death rate, you know, so for the U.S. that would be 900,000 people uh, who died would would still be with us. Um, they Australia also got their vaccination rate up well above the uh, the U.S. level, and so then uh, they've been able to open up uh, pretty much and now get their economy back going. Uh, they did have a little bit of a bump of some deaths uh, right as they opened up, but you know they end up at that that 10% level. Uh, So, you know, having had a little bit of a scare really was worth it for them. Uh, South Korea was scared by a MERS uh, outbreak in a hospital they had. And so they they actually got quite a bit of infection. Uh, They were about the only country where contact tracing let them get on top of it. And so they also uh, have less than 10% of the, the deaths. It, it's fascinating to me because, you know, on, on, they got their scare. <laughs> Your book is effectively a plan for what we should do because we've had this moment. And maybe this is a good time to, to, to shift gears a little bit into what the plan actually is, because there's, there's a number of sections in there. Maybe to start with is maybe talk about this, this idea that you call the, the germ team. Uh, I believe the global environmental disease modeling? Okay, global epidemic response and mobilization. Uh, And the, yeah, the book has just three things. We need to practice and get to the outbreak very quickly. That's where germ is the global piece of that, working with all the countries. Uh, Then there's an R&D agenda for better tools. And then finally, there's the idea that uh, particularly in poor countries, the health systems under investment uh, by fixing that, which has a lot of uh, equity benefits to help uplift those countries, that's also going to help give us the infrastructure for the early warning. So the most concrete thing by far, and actually, uh, although it's a billion a year of cost, as I, you know, sort of pencil out uh, having something like 3,000 full-time people, uh, that's the you know, catch it early and help people run drills and actually, you know, uh, go to the um, the supervising body of the World Health Organization, the World Health Assembly, and give grades to countries. You know, have they been practicing? Are they ready to go? How much pressure should be on them because this is such a global problem? And, you know, a lot of people are talking about the finance piece of pandemics, but You know, when a pandemic hits, you know, the U.S. government is good at writing checks. You know, foundations are good at writing checks. You know, we've spent over $2 billion. So the finance piece, yeah, there's something that can be done there. But it's really the expertise piece, having the data, uh, you know, reaching out to top modelers, um, you know, flying in and and catching that spread early. So, I, you know, I, I think the technical expertise which some people think WHO already has. Um, you know, I make fun of the fact that in movies, there's a lot of WHO people who fly around and do great work. And sadly, the WHO budget just doesn't include that. So this would be like a 25% increase a billion a year to the WHO, which rich countries you know, should want to fund because even though it'll help the entire world, you know, this for them is a, a pretty cheap insurance policy. I always find it funny in the movies that, the, you know, they've got the plane waiting on the tarmac and they're going. And I tell them, like when I flew for government, especially in, in, in uh, this area of epidemiology, we were back in the plane. 
<laughs> barely making our flights. Uh, you know, getting the equipment on board the plane was was just you know, luckily if it didn't get lost in transit. And so maybe talk about also a little bit about you know where does this how do, I think one of the things that we've seen is centralized versus decentralized in in these efforts and the efforts that have been highly centralized you know in the US itself the federal versus state versus city versus county we see a fracturing there we see the international aspects and how would this model how would your model really help uh, with the, the the that that fractured systems that we have yeah so the global team you know would be um you know, based out of the regional offices of the WHO. So they'd be spread around the globe. You know, the most likely risk of a new emergence uh, is either Asia or Africa. Um, you know, the humans invading natural ecosystems that are changing because of climate, uh, you know, the degree to which people eat uh, various exotic uh, type animals, and you've got markets with those, uh, that's mostly in Africa and Asia. And so, you know, all the big outbreaks uh, have come from one or the other. In Asia, you have mostly quite capable governments. And so they need to be, uh, you know, encouraged and given feedback on their preparation. You know, China doesn't need, you know, people who know how to run uh, diagnostics. Uh, you know, they need to make sure the communications chain uh, is getting this bad news out a little bit quicker. Now, they actually got it out fairly quick, uh, but every day counts, and so going back through that is important. With Africa, in a few parts of Asia, uh, you know, like Yemen, you don't have enough government capacity there that on behalf of the world, you're going to be able to do it with local um, people. And so you really will have to have the germ team and, you know, a set of volunteers that would, uh, you know, be on standby that can take this 3,000 and ramp it up to, you know, 10 or 15,000. You'd have to have them willing to go in country and actually do hands-on work to make sure the diagnostics and quarantine are getting done in those countries uh, because otherwise it'll come out and, and get global pretty quickly. Um, for those of you that are following along, uh, please make sure to start putting your questions in chat. I'm going to get to start getting to them in just a minute. Bill, maybe one of the things that also is in there that you you talk about, especially, well, I mean, maybe there's no way to get around this, is like the politicization of this, all right? And, and you know, we've seen this. It's very easy to look at it through the U.S., and we see it literally in everyone's backyard in some form or another. But internationally, we've seen this too. In particular, the one that, that I'm interested in is, is both at the front portion of, of the, the pandemic, we had issues like you know, China being not necessarily giving out the, the whole genomic, the samples early enough or informing people about things. We've had, uh, you know, as Omicron was discovered, there's almost a penalization that happened to South Africa by them informing the world. And so how do we get to a place where, or, or what's your take on how do we cut through this with the greater objective of, of problem solving when, when it, we're confronted with the pandemic? Well, a lot of the activities uh, like gathering the data, you know, funding the R&D, those aren't that politicized. Where you get very political is where you're trying to get high compliance. So a shutdown, you know, people wonder, is this a necessary thing? And of course, given the uncertainties, uh, in some cases, that's a perfectly fair question. Um, you know, it, as we look back, you know, maybe some of the school closures were longer uh, than they should have been now that we, you know, understand more about the disease. I, you know, humanity's got this problem that the next pandemic could be far more uh, fatal than this one. You know, we're ending up with like a 0.2% case fatality rate. Now, much higher as you get older, as you track 
uh, with comorbidities. So actually, you know, for somebody young without comorbidities, the death risk, even uh, when you get infected, particularly if you've been vaccinated uh, and boosted, is very low. So <clears throat> I don't have the magic solution to the uh, polarization of society, but you'd think disease is one that, you know, most of the issues, better R&D, you know, better reporting uh, that we could come around on that. You know, even the best case out of China would have been maybe, you know, a week to two weeks if they'd been perfect. And we can't assume that. So I think they were, you know, actually very good. You can imagine in a low-income country it being far worse. I mean, Taiwan uh, is kind of the extreme case. They reacted so quickly. Their death rate is like 1% of the other rich country death rate. And again, they, their connection to China is very strong and they're not even a fish they're not a member even of who uh you know they're they're kind of on their own so uh you know they the warning time wasn't that bad in this case um you know it's what you did once you had that data or what you did even before the pandemic struck to be ready those are more differentiating than you know the 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 one or two weeks that we might have gained. Mm -hmm. Well, I've, I've kind of started with the the glass uh, is half <laughs> is, is is glass half empty kind of version, but I think switching to the glass half full version because your book is really an optimistic book and sort of laying a pathway out. One of the parts that I think is remarkable and is underappreciated oftentimes is the speed at which we got vaccines, and you know. You've been at the front of funding so much of the work around vaccines, uh, especially in Africa and many places that people don't don't often think about and where the impact is immediate. Uh, or we take those diseases for granted. Uh, we, we, those are not issues for us. Maybe talk to us a little bit about, from your perspective, how you view vaccines because you spent so much time on this. Yeah, the one area where the U.S. Uh, gets a very high-grade uh, both in absolute and compared to anyone else, is the incredible funding for vaccine work. You know, initially through a group called BARDA uh, that's under HHS, uh, and then what became uh, Operation Warp Speed, the U.S. provided over $11 billion. And for the companies other than Pfizer, uh, who did not take that money, but the other ones, that let them go full speed ahead and fund the science, the trials, uh, even scaling up manufacturing at risk. And so a lot of the vaccines, Novavax, uh, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, you know, benefited from that. We weren't sure that how quickly we'd get a vaccine. After all, for, you know, HIV, malaria, TB, uh, after decades of trying to do vaccines for those, which we will get, um, we don't have vaccines. Fortunately, most respiratory diseases, they have a, uh, a protein that they use to latch on that uh, pro the spike protein in this case provides a good target. And that spike protein was similar to SARS-CoV-1. So we had some understanding about uh, exactly the configuration that would be immunogenic. Most of the vaccines worked. Um, the mRNA are, you know, considered the gold standard, but uh, the AstraZeneca, if you really measure it against what it turned out all the vaccines are best at, which is severe disease and death, uh, it's a very, very good vaccine as well. So that's the, you know, incredible story is that we got vaccines within a year. Uh, within two years, we actually had so much vaccine that it's in oversupply. There's a lot that's spoiling because uh, the demand um, isn't, hasn't uh, taken up all those different vaccines that worked. Proving out a new platform, the mRNA, having that platform proved to be incredibly safe uh, with very uh, few side effects. Uh, it's pretty miraculous. And that platform will be used uh, for lots of diseases not just infectious diseases. In fact, some of those companies, uh, you know, a lot of their uh, value will come as they apply it to things like cancer. So they, the vaccine story 
is, you know, full of heroes, full of great science, uh, and, you know, better than anybody could have expected. Let's talk a little bit about also, while we've had this, this unbelievable breakthrough, we haven't had the distribution or we've had distribution issues, both the inequities, particularly those that are underserved, both in the United States, uh, uh, predominantly the black and brown Hispanic populations. Uh, but we've also seen this across the world. And there's been a lot of questions and debate about patents and another, th- uh, you know, different aspects. And one of the things that I was, I, w- I, w- I was really well done in your book is talking about well, how do you think about patents and what this does and doesn't do? And especially from the, the landscape that you've had trying to get these vac- uh, you know, vaccines and therapeutics developed for Africa, maybe you could walk through a little bit of that. Yeah, so the price of medicine is a super complex area. And there are certainly times where uh, patents uh, and the way they're handled affect that pricing uh, in ways that that hurt equity. In the case of this vaccine, uh, that was not the limiting factor. That is, AstraZeneca uh, promised to work on a nonprofit basis, and they went around the world encouraging all the factories that could make their vaccine, which is a lot more because there were no mRNA factories. Uh, Pfizer and Moderna just had to build their own as fast as they could. The AstraZeneca, <coughs> you could use pre-existing factories. And so our foundation gave $300 million, uh, to Serum, uh, uh, the world's highest volume vaccine manufacturer, and they took up the AstraZeneca design uh, and now made you know, $1.4 billion of that. So we did not get vaccines out to the low-income countries as quickly as we should have. It was inequitable. Um, you know, disease sadly is inequitable every day, like cancer treatments aren't there in those low-income countries. But here, you know, we, we tried, uh, we, fell, we fell short on that. And so any country that was vaccinating young people before old people in every country got vaccination, that's, a, that's inequitable. Uh, the U.S., India, Europe, you know, a lot of young people were vaccinated before, you know, South Africans, South Americans, or uh, other parts of Africa got the high uh, distribution out to the elderly. Now we're running into demand problems where because of rumors or some countries where the disease has not been that severe, uh, and there's tons of health problems and, you know, kind of a lack of trust, you know, in some countries, you know, people have more protection because they got infected uh, than, you know, from the vaccine. You know, we're lucky that Omicron, actually the case fatality rate of it is actually lower than all the other variants that, that came before. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe what what does it take? Um, I'm, I'm going to get to some of the misinformation, disinformation a little bit later, but what does it take to get over the hump around these issues locally, especially, you know, I imagine, you know, well, definitely it's been there for polio. We've had this for so many other things, but especially with the Gates work dealing with um, infant mortality, how have you been able to get local areas to, to buy in? Yeah, the ideal is to understand who people trust. Um, You know, in the case of polio, we had a period in the early 2000s where the rumors about the vaccine uh, sterilizing women meant that we had about 30% of the houses that the uh, house-to-house oral polio vaccine campaign would go to, they would refuse the vaccine. And there, it took us a couple of years, but by getting the Muslim religious leaders to visibly vaccinate their kids uh, and explain that, you know, this was beneficial and that you didn't want your kids to be at risk of being paralyzed, uh, we were able to get rid of wild polio in Nigeria. It took us a while. It was uh, hard. 
So you always want to look at those trust networks. You know, as you said, some um, uh, racial communities uh, got behind on vaccination in the U.S. in a few cases by doing the right communication and finding the right communicators. Eventually, the racial gap was closed, uh, which, you know, is a, a very good lesson. But it's, you know, knowing who could convince someone, you know, I say just, you know, show people the hospital ward, you know, and there was a period when the vaccines, you know, were just out where, you know, over 85% of the people were the unvaccinated. Uh, as the vaccine waned and people didn't get boosted, that went down a little bit. But, uh, you know, I always think the evidence is, is pretty clear, but it, you know, that's naive. It's got to be mediated through someone that you you look to and trust. How do you think about it as you look across the United States? You know, we have people who, you know, you have these reports from physicians. As patients are literally being intubated, they're still denying the existence of COVID. Yeah, that's a wild thing. Um, you know, most people are persuadable. Um, you know, some people, you know, have bought into, you know, theories that it was made up for some reason or, uh, you know, a variety of things, almost any crazy idea you can name, there's someone uh, who's latched on to it. And of course, you know, it spreads faster now uh, than in the past because of, of digital media. But there's still a lot of persuadable people. We we shouldn't, you know, think that it's this black and white uh, thing. You know, there's still people who, who can be convinced uh, and also, you know, we, the boosting levels, uh, as we've seen, if the older you are, the quicker that protection wanes. And so boosting is an area we need to double down on as well. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about boosting. What's, how, how should we think about boosting and this debate that's going on right now of where do vaccines go from here? Yeah, so, you know, the vaccines we have today are amazingly effective against stopping uh, severe disease and death. You know, some people's immune systems aren't, uh, don't respond, but that's less than 1%. Uh, These are great vaccines. What we're seeing in the Israeli data and UK data show this, that um, the older you are, the quicker that protection wanes. And so you've got to be boosted. So there's two things about these vaccines that are not ideal. Uh, the duration, um, you know, some vaccines like the measles vaccines, you get, you know, decades of protections. And so we've got to reformulate, but that'll take a long time. In the meantime, we're just going to have to encourage people to get boosted. The other thing that's not ideal, uh, and the New York Times actually had a, a piece on one of the researchers we're funding to work on this today, is that the vaccine does not prevent you from getting infected. And we hoped that it would, but in fact, with Omicron, uh, and I'm an example of this, uh, you can get uh, infection, you know, even after the fourth vaccine. Now, you tend not to have a severe case at all. Uh, What's happening is that as as you acquire this disease, you're breathing in through your nose or mouth and this upper respiratory area, the vaccines don't create uh, many antibodies, secretory or other antibodies. The vaccines create a lot of the protection in your lungs, which that's fantastic because that's where, if you're going to get super sick, uh, it comes from what goes on primarily uh, in your lungs. So there are new ideas about infection blocking, which if we had that, we're going to put a model out on this, you wouldn't see the spread that you see today. A lot of these transmission chains that sadly get to unvaccinated people or people where the vaccine didn't protect them, uh, they're going through vaccinated people. So in infection blocking would be a wonderful characteristic. And, you know, that's one, the, the duration of infection blocking, I think, you know, that's on the five to 10 year time frame. And we need that, you know, if we're going to use mRNA for HIV or TB, we need that duration uh, to make make it economic. Yeah, one of the questions that's come in is the natural question that I think so many 
parents of young people have is, you know, feels like the world has moved on, except they have kids who aren't vaccinated. And and how how should they think about this, especially as you develop a plan for the next pandemic where certain populations are left out because of either a slowdowns in the regulatory process or, you know, just it doesn't work for them. Yeah, so, you know, there's really good guidance from the CDC, uh, you know, as these vaccines get approved for younger ages. You know, we're very lucky that young people, um, their risk is lower. Um, it's not zero risk. About 5% of the cases uh, or deaths uh, from this have been people under 50. And, you know, every one of those, you know, for the U.S., that's 50,000. So, you know, a lot of uh, tragedies there. Um, you know, the the fatigue about this pandemic is pretty unbelievable. I mean, two years, in the first three months, you know, the compliance, even in uh, most communities, was actually fairly good. Okay, the mask message just got a little confused, and uh, but... Uh, you know, staying at home, shutting business down, you know, that kind of thing. For 90 days, you know, it's kind of novel and, and people, you know, they, for all they know, the fatality Are rate could be. pots and pans to cheerlead people? I mean, yeah, it really, it really brought us together uh, by and large. As you get out into this period of time where the damage uh, is not just the disease, it's the depression of isolation, it's the uh, missing education, the trade-offs are extremely difficult. And, um, you know, I don't envy politicians, particularly now that the audience uh, isn't paying that that much attention. Uh, so keeping the awareness up, uh, you know, vaccinating and boosting, you know, that's where the big, big, big win is. Uh, and some countries have gotten up as high as 90%. You know, we're still right down about 70%. So that's pretty poor. And, you know, with the elderly, you should be at like 99%. Uh, and there we're, we're a little bit higher, but not above 80. Let me blend a couple of questions together here, which is how, uh, you know, we're talking here now, more than two years in, 100, uh, 880 plus days into the pandemic, when y your plan, I think, is really ideal to not allow us to get this far in. Uh, and, and so the questions I think that a couple, couple that come up, come up is, could you get a little bit more into the, the specifics of things that would prevent us from getting to this point? Yeah, the key idea is, that even though, you know, we're talking a lot about vaccines here, in the first 100 days, you won't have vaccines. Uh, and what you want to do in the first 100 days is stop it from becoming this gigantic exponential uh, number of cases, both in the first country it's in, but then, you know, spreading out to other countries. And so we're looking at some new tools that would help with that, where, You'd have a, uh, a thing you would take that independent of the pathogen activates your immune system so that you're unlikely uh, to get sick. But, you know, just the conventional measures of isolation, masks, uh, and high-scale diagnosis, you know, those are, you know, what we've got and, you know, what we need to get make sure everybody's good at. Um, you know, catching it in the first country um, you know, my book title is optimistic in saying that you'll have these outbreaks, but you'll get to them soon enough that it won't, it won't go global like this one did. And that's the first hundred days. Uh, and it's, it's not a vaccine story. It's a, uh, communications, um, non-pharmaceutical interventions and get, having lots of diagnostic machines out there. Um, you know, that is very exciting that, that low-cost diagnostic machines that can be used for other diseases uh, during normal years, we're going to get those out even in, in all of the primary healthcare system of Africa. So they would be able to take and say, okay, what respiratory disease do you have? And see, oh my goodness, 
uh, this doesn't fit the normal pattern fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad you brought up the, the surveillance, which often, uh, sadly, it's called surveillance right. techniques, right? So it, it incurs this, implies sort of a negative thing. But this, 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 this idea of surveillance diagnostics is you sample people all the time. One of the ones that I'm, I'm curious from your perspective is wastewater. Uh, and in particular, you know, I still find it a little frustrating where I live is that I'm on the border of two counties. One county does wastewater, so I have good data from theirs. On another county, they, they won't publish it or don't have it. And how, you know, how would this work from your perspective of, of, of a good disease surveillance network around the globe and, and sharing? Is, is it, is it, this germ entity that would bring it together? Is it WHO? How, how would this, what's your model? Yeah, wastewater is kind of a miraculous thing. That was uh, pioneered by the polio campaign and it's the, we call it environmental surveillance. Uh, it's our best tool uh, for seeing outbreaks because a lot of kids with polio never develop any symptoms. And even if they do, that's you know about a month later. And so we, you know, in the countries we still have polio, which are Pakistan and Afghanistan, we do a lot of this sewage sampling, uh, environmental surveillance. Now it's been extended to see typhoid, and amazingly, it sees COVID, and it sees it right away. You can even look at the variant mix in those samples. Now, in the future, most respiratory pathogens don't show up you know, what this does is not only attacks your lung, but it also gets into your gut as well. Amazingly, the um, the sewage waste, none of the viruses in there appear to be infectious. So it's the best of both worlds. It's there as a clear signal and it, it should be monitored, but it's not going to cause uh, what's called oral fecal infection, which is how polio spreads because the uh, sewage, the viruses in the sewage are overwhelmingly still uh, infectious uh, particles. So in countries with good sanitation, you know, polio doesn't spread much. It's mostly where you still uh, have weak sanitation. The overall looking at cases of people with fever and respiratory symptoms and gathering, you know, the nasal sample and getting it off to say, okay, is this just the normal respiratory pathogens? Uh, which you might just be seeing an uptick because there's a lot of variation over time, or is it something new and novel? Fortunately, the you know cost of sequencing, where you can take those samples and actually literally look at the DNA, that's getting inexpensive. During this pandemic, you know there was money sent around both for variant tracking um, and just you know to see the disease. So Africa was kind of in catch up. Uh, other than South Africa, because we had a lot of vaccine trials there. They had, uh, and they caught both beta early in the vaccine trials we funded. And then sadly, as you said, they also caught Omicron quite, quite rapidly. Um, and so that was, that was tricky. Mm-hmm. Well, how do, we, how do we get, you know, who, it's almost this issue of uh, who's going to pay for this at the local level, right? Like, obviously, you know, you funded so much of this in Africa to stand up these diagnostic centers so that they can actually catch things like Omicron and, and Delta. We don't have that really here in the United States, best I can, at least from my experience here. Uh, you know, we've got a little bit around tuberculosis. We've got it around AIDS, but nothing else. So what, what do we need to do to get our own backyard in order? Well, it'd be ideal that when you catch a respiratory disease, if we had antiviral drugs that could treat a lot of those, then you as a patient would be incented to deliver a sample and say, okay, do I have one of these where uh, the drugs can reduce my infectiousness or, or my symptoms? And, you know, I think we'll get to that point where that self-swab capability you know, not the one where you have to go uh, hit your brain, uh, that that's going to be, you know, available. And then, you know, those drugs will create a pattern. And then we'll be gathering that data uh, and saying, wow, uh, we're seeing a lot of flu over here. 
let's make sure we sequence some of those and see, are we seeing a lot because it's a more virulent strain? You know, what are we seeing in terms of hospitalization and that, that sequence? Uh, so the U.S. could be a lot better on respiratory uh, surveillance. And, you know, I, I think we will pull that together. Do you think the next pandemic will be respiratory or should we be thinking about it in a different way, more like Ebola or something, you know, completely different? In terms of the rich countries, a overwhelming part of the risk is respiratory. Um, you know, things like Ebola, uh, where you're infectious once you're bedridden and you're not in a bus or a plane, you know, they just don't spread that much. Now, you might have said, uh, okay, sexually transmitted, how could that ever spread around the world? Well, the answer is that HIV has this latency period that you get infected and you don't have severe symptoms uh, as an adult until seven or eight years later. So wildly, because of the latency, HIV is a pandemic uh, you know, that got out into the entire world. But in terms of something that moves quickly, uh, it almost all the risk uh, is, is respiratory transmission where people on a plane who aren't touching each other can infect each other. And so the good news is you, you, know, you could see it in the air, you can see it you know, in the, the lungs. Um, you know, it's human to human. Uh, without human to human, you know, you're just not that exposed to other species enough that it can you know, get up into the millions. Mm -hmm. Great. One of the questions that's come in, actually, let me blend a couple of these also together, has really been about disinformation. No surprise, since we're here at the Commonwealth Club of San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And, and, you know, one of the things, maybe I'll ask it this way, you know, as a a technophile, you know, which you are and you talk about in the book, really the role of social media, especially in this front end of the pandemic, where so much happened with the power of, of the network to take a fence at or somebody who was on debating about whether to take a vaccine or not and pushing them one way or the other. As reform and so many questions are on the table around social media, what's the responsibility of the social media platforms with regards to information, especially this, this, these kind of critical public health uh, information? Well, we certainly have to innovate there. And I wish you know, I knew the exact answer. But what we saw were, you know, people with a nice doctor title, you know, saying hydroxychloroquine can save you or, you know, the vaccines are not effective at all. Uh, And a variety of things that reduced vaccine uptake. And, you know, drawing the line between somebody saying, hey, I hear that at least in rare cases, these vaccines have side effects, which is absolutely true to saying, hey, these vaccines are awful and nobody should go near them. You know, what is the line where in a First Amendment country, you, you know, label, take down, uh, rebut uh, that, which, you know, it's kind of exciting to click on because it's like, wow, you know, here's this very simple explanation that, you know, this is all just about a few bad people as opposed to complex biology with lots of uncertainty uh, going along with it. That caught me by surprise. Uh, And, you know, I would say, you know, the crazy stuff got out there. Um, You know, the idea that, for example, I want to track people by putting 5G in the vaccine, that one is so far-fetched that, you know, you, you have to kind of laugh. Why would I want to know the locations of various people. What am I going to do with that information? Then again, you know, when it prevents people from protecting themselves and the people around them, then it's a an awful thing. I still can't get sometimes cell signal between San Francisco and Palo Alto <laughs> driving. So let alone getting it in a vaccine uh, is, is, is pretty far out there. But, you know, you're obviously bringing up these ideas to, to political leaders as, as you talk about the, what needs to be done and implement these ideas. Uh, a twofold is, one is, what are you telling government leaders to, to do? Uh, and um, you know, what, how, how are you with your so much, not only personal 
capital, financial capital, but social capital doing to, to move the needle there. And then the part B of that is, are you having conversation with social media and other technology executives and asking similar questions, what they should be able to do or can do to help uh, on these issues, both on social media or investments in, in other technological areas? Yeah, in the social media case, you know, people have to be creative about, okay, what specifically, you know, would they have those companies do? Um, you know, they might, if you have good solutions, be willing to implement or not. But the, you know, how you draw the line of what gets blocked uh, and do you have a consensus around that? You know, particularly in the early days when things first come out, uh, you know, and sort of get established, uh, it's very hard, you know, given the volume involved, uh, you know, should information about vaccines be treated in this very special way? I don't have the answer to that one. Getting the politicians engaged and saying, you know, despite all the other things going on and the polarization, you know, the war in Ukraine, inflation, uh, you know, we're still, you know, recovering from the, the, the this pandemic, despite all that, that the voters expect them to draw on the experts and devote the reasonably modest amount of resources. Uh, and in the case of the new tools, things that will help us even when there's no pandemic or the health system piece that'll help us. You know, the only piece that's kind of dedicated is the funding for that germ team, which even if the U.S. was paying, you know, 30% of that, you know, that's 300 million a year, you know, which is, I hate to say it, kind of a rounding error uh, in the U.S. budget, and certainly compared to the pandemic-related costs that we've borne. So, or DOD's budget at 700 billion. Yep, yep. Although you know now people are, uh, well, yeah, it's a big budget. Well, is is there receptivity to this, or are people still struggling to? I mean, maybe the question it really is. What's it going to really take for us to get our our act in order? I mean, obviously you've written the book, and that's that's kind of so. Your kudos for putting out a plan. That's more than most people are doing. Uh, what do we need to do to galvanize to make this happen? You know, the, the, similarly, like what can the Commonwealth Club be doing? These members, these people here, what can they be doing to contribute to making this a civil society, pulling these things together, making progress? Yeah, well, clearly. You know, a lot of medical research, the way that NIH has expanded over time and does great work, that's been bipartisan. You know, a lot, lot of new money for Alzheimer's, you know, great work on cancer. And even though this isn't just academic research, which is where NIH money goes, some of this has to be uh, more like ARPA-E or DARPA, where you're connecting in private sector companies because you need to know how to build vaccine factories and scale things up. So it's not identical to NIH money, uh, but there are some models that we can follow to, um, you know, take these R&D profiles and accelerate them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of issues that, that, you know, inflame people and divide people. So making sure there's some bandwidth uh, for pandemic preparedness and not just the, hey, you know, my president did better than your president, uh, you know, part of that, which, you know, fine, there, you know, some of those debates need to go on. But the, the R&D agenda is pretty clear to me, the global technical capacity, including the practice thing, that's pretty clear to me. So, you know, I think despite all these distractions and, and political challenges, I do think that uh, between the U.S. and Europe and Japan over the next 18 months, some type of consensus will be created here. This is not like climate change where you're talking about, you know, replacing huge parts of the physical economy and therefore, you know, gets up into tens of trillions, they, which, you know, so that's like a thousand times bigger and needs all of society engaged in those trade-offs. Here, it should become like fire. You know, when's the last time People had to think about, you know, oh, should we have more fire hydrants or, you know, more firefighters? It, that's just at a, 
uh, hey, I assume smart people who aren't even uh, labeled uh, in terms of their party are just saying, okay, maybe we can get by with a few less or, you know, based on forest fires, you know, here we need uh, in some areas a little, a little bit more. So we need to get enough priority uh, to get uh, into the, you know, day in, day out um, dedicated staff. Yeah. Compared to climate, it, one of the things I found surprising, at least from your plan, is it's cheap uh, on the spectrum of things. Definitely when we price it against the impact we face. And this quote I thought was really such a good reminder of it that you have in the book, which is, you know, outbreaks are inevitable, but pandemics are optional. And so it kind of really framed it for me. You know, we just have a couple of minutes here and I have two questions I want to get to. One is, what about the role of citizen scientists? You know, we have these groups, the COVID tracking project. We, we've had all these volunteers that kind of jumped into thing, U.S. digital response um, you know, I could go on and on. There's there's so many people that kind of jumped in, especially the front end of the pandemic, still to this day. What's what's the role of technologists who have skills and, you know, they're like the new volunteer fire bucket brigade? <laughs> well, a lot of the deficits we have, you know, like kids who didn't get enough education or, you know, were kind of isolated. You know, there's lots of room for mentoring and, uh, you know, highlighting uh, that, you know, we're going to take a long time before we, we solve those problems. Uh, you know, even research on long COVID, we need to gather a lot of data. So the data infrastructure or the internet, you know, even though it was part of spreading the crazy stuff, it also allowed people to come in and make real contributions, uh, you know, sometimes in terms of understanding the disease and what was going on, sometimes just working in the local community. You know, these old folks' homes uh, had to go into this very lockdown mode. And so, you know, the, the need for volunteer help and things was super acute or helping out uh, the health workers. So, yes, uh, you know, individual citizens uh, contributed a lot uh, during this. Some things like the data gathering, fine, it needs to be uh, the scrubbing the data, that needs to be centralized, but you know the models don't need to be centralized. People, if, if they had a, a re reasonably accurate set of data uh, to draw on, which you know that was that should be pretty easy, then the creativity they brought to looking at it in different ways was was quite fantastic. So, for almost all our problems, including climate, thank goodness for citizen scientists. They they're kind of trusted. They try lots of things. You know, some of them are dead ends, but uh, you know, collectively, we have a way of finding the, the good ideas. So last question is, you know, for me, the, the thing that I was most optimistic sitting on the front lines of this pandemic, well, really, I should say the front lines were done by the healthcare workers, those of us in the policy roles or modeling, second, second line, uh, support role, uh, was the, 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 the rise of the citizen scientists answering the call of duty in this. And, and I want to end this with, what are you optimistic about? Well, I always look to innovation, uh, innovation in delivery, innovation in the tools. Um, you know, mRNA would have taken an, at least another 10 years to get established. So let's, you know, tune it up to be better for COVID, but also uh, for the diseases we still don't have vaccines. That's very promising. Um, you know, getting more diagnostic capabilities out, I think that can help. Uh in the normal year in and year out uh, bur disease burdens that we're dealing with, um, you know, this move towards the quantified self. Well, you know, that starts as a high end thing, but eventually, uh, you know, tracking our health and our compliance, uh, I think that's going to be very promised. So, you know, digitization in health, whether it's, you know, senior uh, therapist remotely or, you know, just tracking how you compare uh, to other people. You know, I'm very upbeat. Uh, this was a tragedy, uh, but it's shown where, you know, we messed up. Uh, and, you know, I do think we'll, we'll respond to that. Um, it's, you know, they, I love the tools work, a lot of which has already begun. Uh, I love the fact that people were forced a little bit to remember how inequitable health is, that, 
you know, kids in Africa have a 40 times higher chance of dying. And, you know, we need to take our wonderful science uh, and some of our wealth and apply it uh, against that. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not a topic we should avoid because there is real promise in the innovation uh, we can apply. Well, we, we reached the end of our time. Unfortunately, I can, there's, I got so many more questions. <laughs> I'm sure you always get this. Um, but our thanks to Bill Gates, author of How to Prevent the Next Pandemic. Thank you for joining us today. I encourage all of you to pick up a copy at your local bookstore. It's, it's an excellent read. There's lots of really great stories and, and nuggets in there of how to think about this. You can ask more questions online. You can follow Bill on Twitter at Bill Gates or me at D-P-A-T-I-L, D-P-A-T-I-L. And of course, if you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club, effort in making both programs like this, which are virtual or are in-person meetings, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online, as well as follow them online on Twitter at CW Club. I'm DJ Patil. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.